Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I'm a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, where I founded the Product Management Center so we could build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. Several people who are in that fight with me from day one. Red Rusak is on the founding advisory board of the Product Management Center. Sumeya Benganam is here every single week sharing expertise and building a more inclusive and diverse future by just making knowledge more accessible. And then Charles, who is a mentor in the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, he has been empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to break into product management. He's had a lot of success. And one of the the amazing, talented people who he got a chance to work with, Dimple, is here. And she's also uh, been giving back on the advisory board of the Product Management Center. So this is like a product management center extravaganza. Everybody's affiliated. Everybody's working towards one common purpose, which is to just bring more diverse voices into product management. And also anybody who is in product management help empower them to succeed and to succeed developing innovations that are inclusive to diverse audiences. I'm going to start here with Charles to introduce the topic. He proposed building internal tools for product managers. Just shape this conversation. What are people going to learn? What's the general area here for this next hour? Charles? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, one, thanks for having me. It's terrific to be here. And I'm going to speak about this. I'm going to try to speak about this inclusively because there's a lot of different categories, internal tools, but, and Dimple is going to come in and provide her perspective. I'm really coming from the perspective here of the employee experience. What are all the tools? What makes up the digital employee experience? And one of the reasons, or there's a few reasons, but one why this is so important is we've noticed that the workplace has increasingly become digital. And companies are more and more looking at their digital experience as a product itself, where they can differentiate and win with talent. So they are investing a lot in this area. So that's one perspective that I really wanted to pitch for this, because I think there's a lot of resonance and a lot of interest in that as an area. Back to you, Jeff. All right. So joining us today, as always, is Sumeya Benganam. Sumeya, real quick, tell us a little bit about your journey in product. It's been a, a few weeks since uh, we've been here all together. So just remind everybody a little bit about your journey in product. And have you been involved in building internal tools and internal tools for other people in your company and or internal tools for specifically for product managers? So give us a little flavor as to journey in product and whether you've been involved in product managing internal tools. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And it's still January, so I can say Happy New Year without everyone rolling their eye. (laughs) Good to see everyone here. When we're talking about tools for PMs, I think that world is pretty large. 
PMs need a lot of information to make decisions. So when you're thinking, for example, of data that you collect on the software or the product you're building, that instrumentation, there are a number of tools you can use. And a lot of times PMs are at the forefront of making the business case and talking about why they need those tools and spearheading those efforts. And then there are other tools that I think a lot of us are familiar with around collaboration and bringing people together, everything from Zoom to Miro to, you know, road mapping tools and other things like that. And then when you start talking about specific product needs, whether the product has a hardware component or a health is targeted towards health or a heavily regulated area, then we start talking about more tools and more specific needs for that PM for the market or the customers they're dealing with. So we can take this conversation in any way we need to, and I'm excited about that. I think what we're going to find consistent is how to identify the tools you need, how to make the case for it, how to go about building it, when does it make sense to actually build something, and when does it make sense to acquire something. So there are many different angles we can take this. All right, and then we're going to let the fans... (laughs) I don't know why I just declared people fans just because they rolled in here or listening on all major podcasting platforms, but we're going to let them chime in and dive into what specific aspects of this they want to hear from. Red, founding advisory board member of the Product Management Center, tell people how they can get involved in today's conversation and shape where we go. Absolutely. For starters, if you are new to this group, new to how to succeed in product management, we have a Slack channel that was designed specifically to avoid recruiters. God, I feel so bad saying that out loud as I was a recruiter, Jeff. But you know, when you join a Slack channel or a community, the last thing you want is be bombarded with sales opportunities and you know job open recs. While the economy is where the economy is, people want to learn and grow. So we have this really fair opportunity for someone who might be thinking about product management, wants to get their foot through the door, please reach out because not only is it a group, but it is an opportunity for those to pose questions, get answers. And for this live show, that's right, Jeff, tonight for question and answers, you can ask whatever you need to ask and we can answer it here live tonight for you. So be selfish. You can also get involved by, as you're listening in, in about 15 to 20 minutes, raise your hand. Come on on stage. We are warming the stage up for you, aspiring product managers, to share the opportunity to ask a question and help others learn. So Jeff, not to get too meta here, but when someone asks a really good question, it's a gift to our community because a lot of people are shy and don't really know how to ask questions or are afraid to, or you know, just couldn't make the show tonight. And this podcast is here for those to be inclusive and for those who could not make it. Hopefully I've covered everything, Jeff, minus a fax my way to join the Slack group or some kind of carrier pigeon with your Q&A attached to its little little toes, I've got nothing left. All right. But first, Dimple, a former fellow in the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator and a valued contributor to the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator family. Dimple is here. And Dimple, want to know a little bit about your success as a product manager. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on without giving away company secrets. And tell us what you thought you were getting roped into when Charles invited you to join this conversation. Yeah, definitely. Happy to be here, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. So I am a product manager at Walmart Supply Chain. And uh, my product is actually for our Walmart associates and specifically for our drivers, drug drivers. So 
I know generally one advantage of being an internal, being an internal tools for product managers, uh, being that is uh, that you always have ready access to your users. But I don't get that because my users are generally on the road, and I have to go on the road with them for me to ask them about their experience and then build tools for them. And that definitely is an exciting experience. Uh, getting into a truck with the uh, drivers. And uh, I build on automation technology for them, which makes their day-to-day lives easier. Uh, that's what I work on at Walmart. All right. Thank you, Dimple. And then, Charles, we got right to the heart of what we're going to talk about. Again, building internal tools. Uh, Samaya framed how, where we might go with this conversation. But tell us a little bit about your journey in product management and what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. And I just finished listening to y'all's podcast, you can tell I'm from the Southwest, y'all, on non-traditional backgrounds. And before I was a product manager, I was a kindergarten teacher for three years, and then I was a math teacher, and I was a soldier. I was an army officer. I specialized in communications and human intelligence, and then came into product management, and I draw on my background experiences quite a bit, and that's also why I'm so passionate to be part of the inclusive product management accelerator. So I've been working in internal tools specifically around the employee experience. First, I started at Workday where I built their employee experience AI assistant from zero to one. And then I've come over to Autodesk and I'm work where we also built and launched and scaled our internal employee experience AI from zero to one. And we support all kinds of experiences from your search experience, your knowledge experience, everything to make things as findable, accessible, and inclusive as possible. And I think because Autodesk, their their software is positioned to help designers and build and design things out in the world that they've invested a lot because we think of that for our own people and what they need. So that's what brings me here today. All right. Thank you, Charles. Now, I want to know about metrics of success. So when you're building an internal tool, what is the measure of success and how do you build towards that? So, Sumay, I'm going to see if I can put you on the spot here with what are some standard metrics of success when it comes to building internal tools. And then we'll go to Dimple and then Charles. Yeah, I'm thinking about a couple of scenarios in which internal tools have been built for my, either myself or the team of PMs. And the number one criteria is for them to deliver the features we need them to deliver. So in the in both scenarios, I'm thinking about these were data-related products where we really needed to gather insights about how the users were experiencing our products, understand a lot more of the details, everything from heat maps to interactions to all your usual metrics that you experience as a user or as a PM, you would expect. So yeah, so the tools I'm thinking about were of that category. In those scenarios, the two things that were important, like I said, number one, that the tools delivered on what they were expected to deliver. And two, that they were reliable. And beyond that, we really didn't need more because ultimately when it comes to building internal tools, we're not looking to, you know, create really fancy things no one else is going to create that is going to use them other than you know the few hundred or let's say even handful of pms so yeah so the metrics were pretty small as well or pretty uh focused as well all right thank you samaya we're going to hear from dimple and charles about metrics that matter when you're building internal tools 
Yeah, I'm going to echo what Samia mentioned here. For us as well, uh, when it comes to building these internal tools, the user satisfaction, and in our case, we call that associate satisfaction, that is one major thing that we focus on. And we focus on that by measuring either the NPS or the CSAT score, and then use that to identify pain points of our associates and uh, build on that. Other than that, there are some standard product analytics that we focus on and our particular product is very new in that area so we are still growing in that so we are just trying to identify how to do product analytics how to identify behavior analytics how our associates are using the application usage analytics around that and then again as mentioned by Samia reliability of that application so metrics around that uh, like crash-free users and all of that. So these are some of the metrics that we use for uh, identifying the success of our products. And Dimple, just so we can maybe introduce a little more nuance, because I think your scenario is very interesting when you're talking about companies at the scale of Walmart or VMware or Facebook, etc. You're talking about possibly hundreds of PMs being the, the users of these tools. In your case, is what you're building replacing other disparate systems? Is it creating also a common language for people to use? That is a great point that you asked on. Yes, so we actually are working on automating the supply chain in our company. That's why we are trying to actually build a common system for everyone to use and a very good streamlined system which can like one system can feed good data and reliable data to the other system and have that system flow very reliable and have that common and then all of these like analytics and other stability metrics and everything we need to have a common platform and common ways of identifying these metrics like for user satisfaction some systems might use csat score some might use nps score so we want to get to standardized method and standardized tools for everyone to use so that we can have a good comparison and have a good system flow and this is like why i was really excited also for dimple to be here because we both work in internal tools but it's really different you know an employee experience of the way i think about it is in the employee experience, we have over 500 tools at my company. Some, like I'll say, are really fancy. What I mean by fancy is like the wrapper is really curated. The design is really high because the employees are interacting with it. And some, like what Samea was talking about Dimple, it's like, is it functional? Is it delivering on features? So it's going to vary across. And one thing I'd also add is I'm still an army officer in the reserve, and I'm actually our product advisor on the digital soldier experience for the U.S. Army, and they have over 8,000 tools with 40 sign-on processes. I'm not going to get into that, but I get to look at different scales and different maturity around digital transformation, and that's why I bring that in. Here's a way that, that I measure it, Jeff, is I think about the employee experience, so I think about it as a product, and for those of you out there that have ever had like a, a travel rewards experience, like I'll use United Airlines because I'm an SFO and that's our major airline here. Or it could be Bonvoy and the Marriott family. You go through these experiences through that, right? Through your travel experience. I think of the employee experience as a travel experience. What are the things that in the old days you were waiting to call to get like, you know, let's say there was a cancellation. Let's say you lost your bag. Are you on hold six hours? That's the old system, right? 
in a new system, if you have a great app experience, it's constantly giving you those updates before you have a question and you know what's going on and you know what's next and you know what your choices are and it's personalized. So the way we would measure that is like self-service opportunities and are we reducing cases and converting to great self-service experiences for our employees in the areas where they really want self-service, which is about 90% plus. So that's the way we'll track it. We might call it deflection. If closing a case used to cost a hundred bucks, if you measured by what it took for a teammate to actually manually close that case, and we can do that through a self-service experience through one of our tools at, at a fraction of that cost, one to $2, and that's really gonna enable the company to scale. So that's how I think about metric success for employee experience. All right, so we have a few examples of metrics of success for building internal tools. Dimple, Sumeo, Charles, did you have any questions of each other around metrics of success before we move on to the next topic? Jeff, I'll ask a quick one because I feel like what Dimple was talking about, Sumeo, really, it's like, Dimple, I'd love to, like, in terms of getting folks to use a common view of measuring success around internal tools, is there something that you've seen that's worked? Because that, that is so critical when we start to look at things in a unified way across that space. And is there anything that you've learned in that that you would share with us? I think one of the biggest fallacies I had early on, I'm thinking years ago, in working on internal products was, you know, if we built it, everyone around the company is going to be excited because it's going to meet their needs and they're going to want to use it. And what I didn't account for is the stickiness of the thing they were comfortable using for years before, even if it was just Excel or, you know, SharePoint. And so taking into account the consistency of human behavior, the comfort people have around specific tools that they're using becomes really important. So what's going to end up happening is what you see end up happening a lot of times with external software at the enterprise level, where you will have, let's say, 30% be early adopters, the people really excited, the people championing the product, the people, you know, talking about it and selling it for you. You'll have 20% of, you know, a little bit of late adopters. And then, frankly, there will be 50% or at least 30% who will come on board because they have to. And I still cringe in thinking about people having to do anything. But it turns out that a lot of times, especially in large enterprises with a lot of legacy software, legacy processes, that tends to happen. That one really resonates with me. And like, sometimes I feel like to make a Twilight reference, some people are like Team Edward, some people are Team Jacob, and they have their tool, and they are like not going to unclasp it from their hands no matter what you do. All right. Awkward silence because I'm debating with Red. I think it's time. Usually we do Q&A at 4.30, but we see Stephen patiently raising his hand. Red, do you mind if we bounce back and forth, get a few of these questions answered, and then we can go back to what I would want to know? I am for the customer, my friend. Mind is not even top of mind. I am <laughs> opposite of mind. I am mindful of how not minded I am by your question, if I mind it. <laughs> so, Glad uh, you're back, man. <laughs> With that in mind, we'll kick off our Q&A segment. And Jeff, instead of you asking if I'm ready, I'm going to just jump right in and skip the humorous comment. You see, here's what I'm going to do, folks. I'm going to make sure Jeff never asks if I'm ready ever again, if we can have 10 questions by the end of this segment. That's right. Jeff's humor will be no longer if you can raise your hand and contribute to the Red E Fund. All you have to do is ask a question and contribute today. Tax deductible included. So with that in mind, we're going to call up two speakers. Stephen, 
And you know what, Jeff? I'm going to give you the reins to be able to call the folks up as I just handle some quick logistics here. You can ask questions in three different ways. One is by raising your hand here on a live show, and we'll then give you a chance to ask your question. Number two is you can put it into the comments section of the page for this event. But three, and most recommended, DM me, get a hold of me, whether it's in Slack or if you want to message me right here on LinkedIn where we're recording this, I'll be happy to ask a question on your behalf and I will not say your last name. We will keep this confidential. So with that in mind, Jeff, we've got two hands raised. Let's bring more people on the stage. Let's create a question mosh pit, a mosh pit of mindfulness. That's right, the future of 2023, folks. So with that in mind, we're going to kick things off. Question number one was Steven and AWS. You've got it right here on your channel, promoting yourself sitting in front of a laptop. That is commitment to your industry, my friend. Uh, <laughs> what's the question? The stage is yours. Thank you. Well, I'm not familiar with Slack. So what is the Slack channel? And I like the idea of avoiding recruiters. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I see engineers also in your title, which makes me think Discord or any other kind of chat, maybe back in the day, ICQ. But Slack is a communication technology. It allows people at work or mostly at work from what I've seen, communicate privately and securely with one another. But I'm assuming, do you have something like that at work as a product manager that you would only share with the crowd? We're always fans of tools and frameworks here. Well, my company, Identity and IT Security Solutions Corporation, is in the security business. I've been in it for 40 years. So we definitely have our own tools that we use for incident management, case management for customers. Less for customers, more for intercommunication. I think this is helpful for a lot of people who are newer to product management is the curiosity of knowing what tools they use on a daily basis. Um, okay. That being said, did you come up on stage to ask about Slack or did you have a question for product managers? I'm happy to serve you either way, my friend. Well, I joined this meeting because I'm developing, my team is developing a commercial product. So I was interested in it from the commercial product management side. And what my team uses internally to communicate is private channels on AWS, SQS, Simple Q system. And uh, that's how we communicate internally. Wow. That sounds like something that a product manager and an engineer would dream up as their own secure way of doing things because you work for a security company. That, to me, sounds pretty on point. But maybe I'd throw this out there. I've seen, looking at the backgrounds of some of the biggest and most influential companies in the world, I mean, we're talking Walmart and, and Sumia. I mean, seriously, anyone who has space in their title, you know there's going to be some serious NSA-level documents in there. <laughs> so, uh, Of course, you had to go there. Uh, I had to. <laughs> well, so please, I to you. <laughs> I love it because, Stephen, what you bring up is another set so when we're talking a lot of times about, for example, development of infrastructure tools or people who work on tool chains, I've worked in a couple of products or in product teams that were focused, let's say, on a tool chain that involved a lot of security, scanning tools and other things that are involved there. And within that product world, frankly, it looks a lot different than when we're talking about consumer products or even other enterprise products. Everything is technical. And so even the communication solutions, the way we do versioning of things, all of it takes more of this technical veneer and approach that doesn't look similar to the others. And I, will, I would like to tie that a little bit to the 
discussion we were having earlier around trying to create tooling that works for the entire enterprise. So this is, for example, a pocket, I believe, sometimes the infrastructure team or the team working on the tool chain, where you might find that these teams have already found the tools that work for them. They understand complexity of other aspects like security, et cetera, that other people don't see. And so when you're bringing in these enterprise tools and you're saying, hey, we need you to start just using this other tool that they don't believe is the right one for them, there is a little bit of friction there. And so I think a lot of times you see different enterprises take different approaches where they say, no, everyone must go to this one tool. And then others will say, you know, there are these three tools. As long as you choose one of them, it's fine. But for these types of communications, we're only using this one. So I've seen some hybrids there that can work as well. I love that point Samaya made. And I think one thing that we're speaking, though we're speaking about the importance of product management and um, internal tools, it's also taking a product marketing Uh, mindset to internal tools as well to be effective. So like an example that comes to mind is when you build an AI system, you might take away (laughs) other chat functionality, right? But instead of letting the whole company say, hey, we're going to take away chatting with the person, you just want to target the folks that actually use that feature of chatting with the person and let them know that, hey, we're going to, we're introducing new tool. It's going to, it's going to keep providing this value that you used to, but if you take it old school, not product management or product marketing, and you tell the whole company that you're taking something away, now everyone feels like they're losing something, even though maybe 90% of them weren't even using that. So it's really being thoughtful about really seeing your end users as critical parts in how you communicate changes to get them on board and get them excited. And a lot of folks won't see internal tools in that way, and that'll really undercut their ability to scale. What a party you've created here, Stephen. I can say this from just in general, having people join the show and ask questions, you've already got the juices flowing in terms of not only internal tooling, but helping educate those who might be new to the space about what is available to them and what they can expect when they join the complexity of a system compared to the simplicity of communication. Hopefully, I didn't over grossly uh, summarize what it is you were after, but Stephen, I want to give you a thank you for jumping on stage and bringing value to this community. So thank you bet. You. Thank you for letting me share. I appreciate it. Equally. Thank you. And you're getting a high five slash a high clap over here from Sumea, another one of the cool features here of LinkedIn, the emoji love. Now, with that in mind, we got other folks. Sumea, I saw the emoji disappear. Now I'm expecting another one, but how do we get it? We're going to have to ask another great question. So we got on stage. Hopefully I'm saying the name Garen. I believe you were brought up on here to bring out a question that you've been hoping to ask. So now, my friend, the stage is yours. And I absolutely love the red tie. (laughs) Killing it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for putting this on. This is a fascinating conversation. My question is, how do you think of the build versus the classic build versus buy question as it relates to internal products and how maybe that's different than external products or products you sell? Ooh extra challenge here as we jump to the who's going to answer it. Try to re-ask that question in your own words. I'm seeing, I want to see if there's any bias here, not in a bad way, towards uh, Bill versus buy. Dimple, I'm going to bring this one to you if you're okay with it. But as always, you can always pass it on if you want to pass it on. Yeah, of course. I can try to answer this. I think this is a constant debate that goes on when we are solutioning any products. And uh, 
I think even for the product that I am the product manager for currently, uh, there was uh, a debate on whether to build or buy on that particular one as well. And uh, we finally ended up building it. And I think there are multiple factors and I see a lot of teams and organizations prioritizing it the same way they prioritize any product solution. Factors might be one is custom needs. Scaling for a company which is the size of Walmart, that definitely comes in on the top. Will it scale well for the size of our users or our employees? And there's also monetary restrictions. How much would be spent if we are building or buying it? There's also when you are buying, whether it's a product or like acquiring a company, especially if you are acquiring a company, you are not buying just one product. You are buying an array of products. And so you have to maintain uh, that particular area of product. And so that becomes a decision. Do you want to get into that if it's a new area, uh, do you want to get into that area? Is there something that we'll be able to maintain? So I think these are some of the factors that come in my mind. Happy to pass on to Charles or Samia if they have anything additional. Yeah, I love those. Those really resonate. I, the two things that I think about here listening to Dimple is like assessing, like, what are we good at? So my product engineering design team, like what are the core capabilities and features and experiences that we feel very confident that we can provide and continue to grow with the technology? And what are the areas that we just need to be no ego amigo that like, we're not as good at that. And that's a better area to partner. I think of like, to my parents out there, your kid can't say like, this is the number one toy that I want. And then 15 minutes later, this is the next number one toy that I want. And then all of a sudden it's 10 toys. And then you're in this space where it's just not sustainable. So when I think of, there can be strong, in my experience, preference to build internally where we could buy. And it's really, this goes back to Jeff's question, how are we measuring the KPI? What is the main thing? And being really no ego about what's the best way to get there. And that is really challenging, I think. And there's a tendency sometimes, there's a tendency often to build where we could have bought. You know, I think there have been over the evolution or over time, there have been a lot of rules that people have have been using in the build versus buy. My favorite (laughs) one has always been the, you know, the question of if the feature is something that your customer is going to end up using and has a lot of constraints if you're looking at the market and there are lots of constraints and you won't be able to develop it further for your customer because of those constraints, then you should build it in-house. However, I don't think this rule applies all the time. For example, a lot of MVPs or early early in the life cycle of the product while people are identifying whether there is a market fit for that product, things are tied together, you know, with, uh, like they say, with scotch and shoelace. And they can be just a number of bought products that are put together to determine if this is something we want to build out further. So there is nuance here. It depends on the need. It depends on the competitive advantage you're trying to create in the market. And also it depends on the maturity of the product. Recently looking at a tweet by, I believe, the CTO or the CIO, of the company that has Basecamp, a product a lot of PMs are familiar with. And they saw that they were spending more than $3 million a year with AWS. So they decided to go the on-prem route. No one is doing that anymore, but they went that way because the cost was a driver in this case. 
if we were to talk about, you know, the rules that we all know these days, everyone is going to the cloud. But I think there is nuance here too to say, even in the buy versus build world, whatever might make sense for one person or wherever the trend is, it might not make sense for you and your product. So just uh, wanted to add that little nuance here. Ooh, Garen, I got to hear it, man. Do you feel like your answer was out there? I see a clap. It's an emoji. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. That was fantastic. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, this is a complete tangent, but thank you, my friend, because my company moved to the F5 building in Seattle, and uh, it is a gorgeous home for us now, thanks to the work of F5. I can't say Garen's last name, but uh, please don't Google <laughs> two together. Sorry, Good Garen. <laughs> We're going to have to cut that part out. Uh, uh, Garen, let uh, us Garen. know if you want us to cut that out. But Red, I do want to ask, I was actually going to ask our panelists the same question Garen asked. So I would like to give him some more space if he had any follow-up questions or give Dimple, Samea, and Charles space if they had more they wanted to add to that question or questions for each other as it goes to make or buy. So Garen? Two questions to you. One, do you want us to keep the clip about how much we love your office? And B, do you want to continue with a follow-up? Sure. Yeah, you guys can keep that. No problem. Score. I love Samea's comment about competitive advantage. And that's something that I've thought about quite a bit. If, you know, I think about like Amazon and how they built kind of all of their internal logistics tooling, right? And it's kind of one of their chief competitive advantages. And so they've been able to protect that advantage because they built it internally. And I'm curious if any of the panelists have additional kind of comments or thoughts on that specific part of build versus buy and, and how it plays into your competitive advantage. Yeah, because I feel like there's a few categories of internal tools and we're talking a lot of procurement and we're talking about a lot about employee experience and there are many more, but that's what Dimple and I are coming in from. One thing I would highly prioritize, like going back to my analogy, because I think of employee experience like a travel experience. I think when you choose to join a company, that's an adventure and you're like on a travel experience. So you think about that with an airline and the things that they would want to be highly curated or highly connected to their brand, they would want to build more. So like, what's an example of that? Like when you think about your employee experience, like when you get the offer, when you get a promotion, like those like positive moments that matter, how do we really curate those that really connect you to the brand of the company? Because in that moment, you know, I, if let's say you get promoted, I love ServiceNow, but I don't necessarily want ServiceNow to, oh, you get some message or workflow update from a company that is not my own. That is going to be a part of the digital employee experience that I really will want to build because it's really sticky in a positive way to you as my end user. So that's a big thing that I'm factoring in and where we allocate our resources for those kinds of internal tools and experiences. Yeah. And one more thing that I would like to add is, and I know it has been touched a little bit before, but uh, compatibility uh, with your own internal already built or bought tools, that is also one of the major factors. Because uh, sometimes there is a need to integrate that particular tool with other tools. And uh, if compatibility isn't going to be as seamless as we expect it or hope it to be, then that also factors in whether we want to build or buy. And uh, generally, when you are building it internally, you have more freedom to customize it to your needs to seamlessly integrate it with other systems. And I think that's why I would also prefer if uh, there was a debate like this, I would also prefer that we rather build than buy because that comes in as a major factor later when you are integrating it with other systems. 
You know, if I was to limit the the question to just thinking about tools PMs use, I think 90% of the cases I'm thinking about, I would say build it. I'm sorry, buy it. <laughs> Definitely buy it until the tool stops working for you. I cannot think internal tools that I've seen even at large enterprises, for example, Microsoft is very famous for also having its own internal tools. I know Amazon is, where those are superior to ones available in the market, unless their internal tools are also available to the market. So basically, if you have customers beyond just your internal teams, the likelihood of your internal tools being successful is higher. However, if there is no one else in the market who's going to use these tools you're building, maybe you should consider starting with, you know, the buy approach. Again, I'm thinking about, uh, for example, the data tracking tools out there, everything from LaunchDarkly, which is not the best tool out there compared to Optimizely, let's say, for example, to data collection tools. Like, for example, Red, the company you work for now or worked for before, was very helpful to PMs for collecting feedback from customers. Finally, (laughs) someone recognizes that on the show. I mean, Jeff, I've been waiting (laughs) two years for this moment. I only paid a hefty fee to sponsor this. So so then the question is, do you want to spend six months building something or do you want to buy something right now and turn it on, you know, next month or next week? So, you know, I'd be hard pressed right now to point to a single enterprise tool that I find to be superior if it's not available to the external users. I think one of the points through listening to Samaya is also like, how big is your company, right? And how, what is the sales strategy? Because when I listen to the Microsoft use case, one of the reasons they do that is they sell all of those tools, right? And nobody wants to be the AE representing a tool that your company doesn't use internally. That's a really weak position. So I think we will get that limitation sometimes. Like when I was a product manager at Workday, which sells employee experience tools, we would get a strong pressure to use a certain tool that we created in-house for that reason, because it strengthens the sales approach. So that can be a limitation. And sometimes that can be a friction area internally. Are we building for you know our product managers, for our end users, for our employees, or are we strengthening the... I'm not going to say there's easy solutions to that space, just that it's it can be a nuanced and a complex space. Thank you. You know, Jeff, I want to make sure that as we had contribution, uh, everyone had a chance to respond did you have anything that you wanted to add or Dimple, anything more you wanted to add to that? Thank you, I'm good. <laughs> Perfect. So then in that case, besides the fact that I want to applaud Sumeya for, uh, by the way, fun fact, my company that you're referring to of 10 years was uh, acquired two weeks ago. So uh, it's now has a much larger home and a much larger mission to take on. So congratulations, Team Appetentive, if you're listening. And all the product managers, I wish you the absolute best because now everything you wanted to be built, well, I believe they now have the budget to build it. The question is now time because product managers know they could build everything, but we only have so much time. <laughs> Resources. Woo. Okay. Garen, thank you so much for jumping up on stage and continuing to feed the conversation. We have someone else who's been waiting absolutely patiently, and I want to give them a chance to speak their mind. Someone who put the word product in their title. I applaud you and hopefully I say your name correctly on God. And if you want to correct me, it's totally fine. The stage is yours. Unmute yourself and please enlighten us. How can we help you today? Thank you so much, Red. And yes, the pronunciation was absolutely spot on. So 
No, no issues there. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to ask a question. And this has been riddling me for a few months now. I have a road mapping challenge. We work in a very niche niche segment in the industry. And the data model has changed, which has forced us into building a fresh stack while continuing to offer ongoing operations and enhancements on the current stack, which essentially means we're dealing with a moving target with the go live date for the new stack. And the more we feed into the current stack, which means we have to route that development through the new stack onto the go live. And essentially, I'm spending twice the money for half the business value. Has anyone else in this in this circuit come across a challenge like this? And how do you tackle this? What I am doing to sort of essentially tackle this is managing stakeholders and, and helping them realize why this is essential and try and sell the value of building at 1x rather than 2x and deriving half the value. And that's working. It seems to be working so far, but are there any better ideas out there? And I would love to hear about it. Angad, I will point out that not only is this a really good question, it is our last question from the audience before moving back to questions from moderator and such. But I also want to throw out there that I think the answer to this question, if I can add a little bit to it, might have shifted with the current economy, you know, with where everything is going and, and how companies are starting to focus more so than ever before on, you know, making more of what they have and ex- ultimately maximizing the resources. I'm curious to see not only if anyone else has experienced this, but if they've experienced a shift in mindset as we've gone from 2020 to now 2023. And Charles, you now have the monolithic question, and there's a pun <laughs> in that response. <laughs> well, well, okay. I mean, I'll just model my thinking for how I would explore this. And, you know, one, I go back to, you know, in IPMA, we get a lot of folks that come in from a project or a program management perspective and transitioning to product management. And one thing that they work on and we support them is from a program or a project perspective, you're thinking about completion on the plan often, and that's what you're evaluated on. But then when you shift into that product management approach, it's much more dynamic, right? You're thinking about what are the new inputs that I'm getting and do I need to shift rather than have a completionist model? You're thinking with a more agility-based one. So without knowing exactly what's right in your context, it does feel like being generous with y'all's selves that you may need to shift there for the reasons that you said. So that's one, like the generosity to shift and that that's okay. I think, Red, you were talking about change in economy. Like, how do you give yourselves the space to recognize it as a win to shift away from something that you were planning to do before? That can take some muscles to do that right. And then the second thing is like, who are the stakeholders and how do you come together with a more design thinking session to really collect like that broad spectrum of feedback from your stakeholders across these different criteria? What are the risks? What are the opportunities? So that you can then synthesize and identify your trends. And everybody can look at that and see the complexity together and see the trends emerge together. And hopefully that should create a new sense of meaning and purpose that you can storytell around. So that's the way I would just model thinking about your use case and love to hear, Samaya, what your thoughts are on this. You know, this is a very interesting uh, topic to me. So in the work I do (laughs) day to day, actually, now, there's a lot of modernization challenges that I talk to customers about and legacy companies about. Think about it this way. There are banks out there that have back-end systems that handle millions of transactions every day that are one line of code away from breaking apart completely. And so 
the imperative to modernize is extremely important, but also the imperative to stay alive with these old system is extremely important. And so what happens is you have to do both in parallel. You as the PM have a lot of work to do around trying to delay some of the non-important enhancements that people ask for, but also at the same time pushing forward with the modernization approach. And the key to all this is for you to as you're building this new modern uh, stack or new replacement, is to show value in it as fast as possible. So whatever you need to do to push that and start that and start showing value there, do it because it's easier to say no to some of the other enhancements that are not critical, let's say, if you already are showing that you're making progress in this other area that they really care about. And there are so many thought leaders in this space. One of them is Martin Fowler. You can look up some of his writings on this topic. There are very specific and concrete ways that engineers can handle modernization to help them do it as fast as possible. So you're not alone in this. I think you need to make sure your engineering partners are on board. Well, you posed the question within the context of what should I do? You know, there was an either or around stakeholder management. And I believe that it's all the above in this case. You need to continue building trust by doing what you need to do with the existing system. And at the same time, continue to show movement and build additional trust with the brand new ones so you can say no to the other stuff. Okay, we've covered the world and then some. And Angad, before I hand things back to Jeff for the show, I just want to make sure, do you feel supported? Did you get what you need today? Yeah, thanks. I I think I do. There is definitely value in what Charles and Somaya mentioned around, you know, having, exploring all possibilities and shifting mindset. I think this this leaves me with some homework here and I, I might have to go back and do some looking into stuff and the feedback that I've got from Somaya and Charles. So uh, yeah, I do really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. And thanks, Ted. You know, you're very welcome. Anytime we can help, please remember the show and recommend your friends. That is the entire purpose of our being when it comes to delivering inclusive product management. With that in mind, we're going to send you back to uh, the monolith of decision that you have ahead of you, my friend. Not an easy one. And anyone else who might be able to relate, please reach out to Angad and jam with him on figuring out how you can manage up in terms of getting support to getting out of that situation long-term. Now, in terms of next steps, I'm bringing the show back to Jeff and the crew that started it all. Here you go, my friend. This is real internal support. Thanks, Rick. I support you. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. I just love your enthusiasm. Every Tuesday, it gives me uh, a jolt of energy. So we got to wrap up quickly. We only have about five more minutes, but I do have a, a question that was raised to me, and I think I want to give everybody a chance to answer it as quickly and succinctly as possible. What are the frictions that are unique to internal tools? So maybe if you could just kind of give one and then rapid fire and we can keep going till we get a couple. But one friction that's unique to an internal tool and why it's a friction or help bring it to life. Charles, start with you. Yeah, often in internal tools, the end user experience, the insights around it are less clear, less communicated, it's less invested in to do the insights around that. So then your senior executive stakeholder can just fill in with what they sometimes want to do in the roadmap and not as be as rigorously accountable to like what your end users actually need and want. So that can be one of the friction areas. And I know that happens in consumer-facing products, but I think it's uniquely high concentration of that in internal. 
Dimple, any friction? I know your first experience is primarily working internally, but anything relative to what you know you had learned in the IPMA, you had learned in all your studies that you had been doing to get into product management, something that you feel is a surprising friction that you're experiencing with internal tools? Yeah, so from my perspective, I think one thing that is unique to some of the internal tools is also uh, that they are not directly tied with revenue for companies. They are mostly, I think, uh, 90% of the times for employee experience to enhance that. So to build a case for them and to manage stakeholder expectations and prioritize resources and uh, improvements for such products with the executives, that is also, I think, unique to internal tools that sometimes uh, product managers for internal tools might have to do. Thank you, Dimple. Samaya? You know, I second what I heard so far. Having seen a lot of internal tools go through the life cycle of being really good, really great, really helpful, and then falling into the abyss of forgotten investments or, you know, things where they're not a priority for future investments. And I'm talking for everything. For example, one company I worked for, we had a, an equivalent of Jira, and it was a streamlined version of Jira, but we haven't put investments into it for years after that. Here's how I'm going to say this. If you want to build it, don't. <laughs> Think about buying it. Give that serious consideration, especially if it's specifically tools for product managers. <laughs> All right. Can't get any more direct than that. (laughs) Um, It's time for concluding thoughts. Let's see. Let's start with Dimple. Again, I'm really proud that you were a fellow in the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator and now thriving at Walmart, speaking here, of course, on your own opinions. But I'd love for you to share your concluding thoughts you'd leave the audience with. Yeah, I think, uh, as you mentioned, this is my first experience as an internal product manager. And uh, just seeing that how you have to think about employee experience that has really taught me how to think about user experience in general, whether it's for internal or external tools. And I think if someone really wants to get into user experience or then I think going into internal tools and building something for employee experience, I think that is a great first step to learn that in my opinion. Thank you, Dimple. Great to have you here. And then Charles, a mentor in the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, really proud of the work you've done, creating a sense of belonging among people who are driven, but several of the individuals have imposter syndrome and you've really brought out the best in them and helped them succeed as Dimple has. So I'd love for any concluding thoughts that you have on today's conversation. Yeah, thanks. And I got to say, like I've learned just as much, if not more, from Dimple. She's such an inspiring product manager and just many of us are so excited about all the things that she's going to go on and do. And, you know, I'm a huge cheerleader of internal tools, product management. And for two reasons that I'll just say briefly, one, we are living in a profound time of revolution in the employee experience, transformation, revolution, whatever we want to think about it as it moves to become more flexible, more remote, to include more people that were not as included in it before who have amazing things and amazing value to create for companies. So I just a huge shout out to folks going into that work. 
there. And then in the second, we have these huge civic institutions that have not transformed. You think about federal institutions, you think about, you know, we just have, for instance, the all the water and rain in California, like how is the government and the state government and local government interacting with us as citizens and what kind of internal tools will they need to build to do that better? So I think we're living in a time where this kind of product management is going to have a really positive effect in a lot of different areas. So anyone out there that is considering stepping into like Dimple Set Employee Experience, or helping transformation of large enterprises through internal tools. I definitely encourage them. Back to you, Jeff. All right, Charles, with energy that rivals red. So we'll see who's going to keep us going the most here with uh, their passion and enthusiasm for what they're doing. Sumeya, also passionate and brilliant. What do you want to leave the audience with? I think one point that was brought up earlier, and I with it, to use the same approach you use in building external tools as in building internal ones, specifically user-centered approaches, interview the users, understand their pain points, treat them as you would an internal or an external user who would pay for the product, and use the same other techniques you might have learned around understanding pain points, developing lean solutions creating ones that would work for as many people as possible and being inclusive as well. So I'm excited for people who are in this space because I think there is something to be learned. And while I say, you know, if you can buy it, why build it? (laughs) I also think that when we're talking about companies at scale, a lot of times it does, it's a competitive advantage to build some of these tools. All right. And I want to conclude with a big thank you. Sumeya and Reda, we didn't get to talk after this happened, but we crossed 100,000 downloads. And it's not possible without both the energy that Red and Sumeya that you bring every week and without guests like Dimple and Charles being so generous with their time and their expertise, sharing their valuable experiences with people from around the world. So thank you, Charles and Dimple, and to all of our guests for helping us reach 100,000 downloads and beyond. And then also thank you, Charles and Dimple, for being a part of the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator family. So it's a program out of the University of Washington's Product Management Center, and it's really about just supporting one another. One of the fellows used the word lift as you climb. It is a group of people who are motivated to succeed, motivate to help all those around them succeed. And success is not just on the balance sheet, but you know, developing innovations that are serve a broader number of people, help more people feel seen, heard, and, and invited by the technology that we're creating. So it's a real honor that Dimple and Charles are huge advocates, huge uh, contributors to the program. And I hope all of you who are listening will consider getting involved with the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. Hope everybody has a great day and we'll see you next week. A new time, same place, 12 o'clock p.m. Pacific time will be on LinkedIn on Tuesdays. And the podcast comes out every Wednesday on every major podcasting platform. So like and subscribe and give us five stars and help the world see what great product managers are doing to build up the community. Take care, everybody.